have found a fortress in the living God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and my lips will tell of all his saving grace. Oh, the depths of which no man could measure. In the days of plenty, in the days of want, I will put my trust in you alone. For there's no heart greater than the Father's heart, and there's no love sweeter than the Son. I'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 15 to 29. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility, and there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be exceedingly righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? I thought that was interesting. Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp a thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all your words that are spoken to you, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For you have also realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I have tested all this wisdom, and I have said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. (laughs) What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know things, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is is a snare and, and a net, whose hands are chains, One who is pleasing God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I not have found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, and that they have brought out many, sought out many devices. Lord. Thanks be to God. Merle, can you see if my mic's a little high back there? Sounds like it is so far, and I'm not talking that loud. And kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. 
God made the one as well as the other. Um, we've been exploring Ecclesiastes this summer so far. Uh, Mr. Ringer, could you do me a favor? Actually, I forgot another thing. My actual sermon book is in my office. It's a gray book about this size. I could try to go from memory, but I was like, I could either turn into like five-minute sermon, which uh, thanks be to God, or two hours. So uh, I figured why take the risk of, of the two-hour one um, over the five-minute one. There we go. Um, thank you. Can you get a coffee and a... You know, if you, don't, if you have time to run to Starbucks, that would be uh, great. Um, so we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, but that was the end of, of last section, verse 14, is that this idea is that what is it for us to make straight what God has made crooked? Um, what is it for us to consider our days? And in the midst of considering our days, being reminded that God made our good days as well as our bad days. And then trying to reside in that. Does it mean that, that in the midst of life that God made our good days as well as our bad days? Now, um, Kohelet, which is um, what we're calling the author of Ecclesiastes, which should say what the author of Ecclesiastes calls himself. I think if I say what we're calling the author of Ecclesiastes, it's like, oh, Defiance Church gets to make up names for each of the authors of the books, which would be fun. But this is the, what the author is calling himself. And actually, it appears in this section, too. There's a, there's a moment where the narrator, the frame narrator, which we've talked about, interjects, which is odd. Um, he interjects into the middle of the book as Kohelet's speaking. He says, says Kohelet says the teacher, says the gatherer, says um, uh, the congregant, depending on what your translation is. But, but it's almost in that frame there that the acknowledgement is that this book is, is coming to us through a tradition and a hand of somebody else than just Kohelet himself. Like, that this book has been included and collected, and the person is there reminding you as he questions a lot of Israel's wisdom literature in this section to say, this is what this person says, this is not what I'm saying. Or that this is, this is the traveling, the path we're on as the speaker speaks, but I might have something else to say later. He's sort of interjecting, and it's the only time in the whole sort of book that the frame narrator from the beginning to the end puts himself in the middle of the book says Kohelet says the teacher um, so we've been walking with Kohelet's version of the story and then considering the end at the end of each sermon but but this book is is a hard word for us it's in the words at the end of the book a goad it's a pokey stick to keep us sort of on the path it's it's this wisdom that that hurts to hear it's the sense of sort of a counter testimony to the way that things are predominantly um, and here Kohelet uh, the teacher is going to question more what does wisdom mean what does knowledge and righteousness mean? And one of the things that we've been ar arguing is that he's sort of in the context of, of journeying with Proverbs. Proverbs has tried to make it clear that, like, here is a good path for life. Here is where success is found. Walk in these ways, my son, which is a father to the son at the beginning of the book, and here you will find fruitfulness. Avoid this path. Stay on this path. And Kohelet's version, Ecclesiastes, is to say, is in the first half, um, 
what is the evidence of that path. And so he, he ha- ends with these passages at various points to say, you know, the best you can do is be happy in your day, in your work, in your labor, in your eat and drink, and to not think that life has this grand purpose to it. And the second half of the book that we sort of started last week is, is he begins once to say is what's good? Like how do we know the good in all this? And we're journeying with that right now. Kohelet use is at the start of this passage, one of our other words that we've, we've sort of been using this, is this notion of, of Hevel. Is, and so he starts in verse um, 15 that Merle read for us. In this meaningless li- life of mine, I have seen both of these. In this uh, Hevel life of mine, in this smoke and vapor, in this, and, and this is, this is why we have our smoke machine in this thing that is here but is hard to grasp. I have seen these things. And it's worth noting again that, that Kohelet mainly refers to this everything from the frame of I. I have seen, I have investigated, I have put through these trials. I have seen this in the frame of my life and in this meaningless thing and and. Because he's he's a teacher, I was wondering which Sunday that would happen on. Um, smoke machine kills pastor. Um, <laughs> I think it's too funny. Um, the uh, especially because it's not a smoke machine, but people would just assume it's like some mega church, and the guy tripped over it and fell into like something. Anyways, um, and here we are uh, in this Hevel smoke machine, meaningless life of ours. I've seen both of these is sort of where he starts today. Now, I did want to go back just to last week um, uh, because I I cut a lot of observations as we were sort of going through it. But there was one I wanted to come back to um, uh, this. uh, We'll we'll get to that in a sec. But but there's I was reading this book, uh, Live No Lies. And in the interviews from the book, uh, the author often talks about when he was in, I think, let's just say Hungary, someplace in Eastern Europe. Um, he was in Hungary, and he was talking to a young woman, and she said, this is what's so weird, you know. I, I think she's Catholic, and she says, I'm a Catholic. Um, I regularly play. I go to Mass. I have friends who do that. I have friends who don't do that. And she says, I have this times where, like, you know, I have two young kids. Um, I kind of want to go back to work. I'm not sure if I should go back to work, but I love raising my children. Um, But my husband's gone to travel, and she's like, life is hard. Life is hard in these moments. And she says, what's odd, though, is when I talk to my Catholic or my non-Catholic friends, um, and I express to them, you know, here's, here's the frustrations that I'm dealing with from a very sort of human way. The thing they say is, um, oh, we'll just uh, hire a nanny. We'll just go back to work. Um, uh, some of the ones will say, you know, perhaps it's time to get a divorce. Perhaps it's time to move on. That her friends instantly jump into like, not that life has frustrating elements to it, but solutions to pull her out of life's frustration. And anybody, I mean, as a pastor, I've talked to multiple people who's, who have been through divorce um, for both good reasons and, and bad reasons, um, but nobody would say it made their life easier. Um, necessary or not, nobody would say, then everything cleared up. And so their advice to them, 
you know, is, is very weird that she receives. Is, is this advice is sort of like, you're not meant to live in frustration. And there's ways to sort of, perhaps, uh, she says oftentimes people will recommend medications for her. This is part of our uh, mental health industrial complex in the West, is sort of like, well, maybe you need an upper, um, or maybe you need a downer, um, to go to bed at night. Maybe your kids need a downer. That these sort of things um, uh, happen. Um, and what, what uh, the author of the book says to her, he says, I think what you're saying is that you want to suffer. And she says, yes, yes, that's exactly it. Nobody I know wants to suffer. She says, where did you hear that? And he goes to um, A Brave New World by Huxley. Um, this is the, the, the leader of the Brave New World and Huxley speaking to one they call John the Savage. Um, and John the Savage has sort of decided that, that what is offered by this world that everything looks good in, everything is sort of, and this goes back to the ways in the last section that we could numb ourselves through life. And in this section, I think Kohelet's going to say, the ways in which we can win life through gathering wisdom or win life by being excessively wicked or win life through these ways like but what is going on in this passage is this this um uh i think it's masada man comes and speaks to him and he's trying to convince john the savage that you don't want to live in this other world we freed it um and so he says violent passion surrogate regularly once a month we flood the whole system with adrenaline it's the complete psychological equivalent of fear and rage all the toxic effects of murdering desmond are being murdered by a cell without any of the inconveniences you'll get all your high without any of the inconveniences john the savage but i like the inconveniences we don't, said the controller, we prefer to do things comfortably. Get the divorce, start the medication. And like I said, there, there are moments where these things, but this is the only advice they have for this woman. You know, we prefer to do things comfortably. But I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. In fact, said Mahantaman, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. That, that this world is bent towards like our perpetual only happiness, which the Founding Fathers got something right, although it's not originally happiness, and saying that the pursuit of it were guaranteed, not it were guaranteed. All right, then, said the savage, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. And here, the, the, the controller comes back, not to mention the right to grow old and ugly and impotent, the right to have syphilis and cancer, the right to eat too little, the right to be lousy, the right to live in constant apprehension of what may happen tomorrow, the right to catch toyfood, the right to be tortured by unspeakable pains of every kind. There was a long silence. I claim them all, said the savage at last. Mohatsaman shrugged his shoulders and said, you're welcome. The scene in this novel captures, I think, some of what the author of Ecclesiastes is asking us to consider. We can try to quest for a way to go through life without all of the frustrations. But what we happen is we lose so much in that. You're going back to the last passage. But I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want danger. 
I want freedom, I want goodness, I want sin. Um, and so this is, I think, this passage is obviously uh, written quite a long before the internet, which is interesting, um, uh, long before the internet, but that, that, that Huxley saw that the dangers of the modern world might be not what we see in 1984 from Orwell, this controlling sort of narrative, but from this pleasure narrative. It would be pleasure that actually will cause us to give up all our freedom, not totalitarianism. Um, and then when you look at the modern world, you're like, it's still hard to choose which one we're going towards, but, but sometimes it seems so obviously pleasure, and sometimes it seems so obvious that we want totalitarian overlords. But, but um, I think they both pose interesting questions for us. Um, but this, I think, speaks to what Kohelet is saying about this modern world and life, is that, is that we can choose to find freedom from all that makes us unhappy, or we can choose to live within the vapor, the frustratingness of existence. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? But we can find ways out of our suffering and out of our trials and passions um, they promise more likely more emptiness on the other side. But what does it mean to be plunged into reality with your eyes open? To be able to see things fairly. This is where in the last section he advised that perhaps you might see more truth at the funeral than at the wedding. That, that reminding, being reminded of your death could bring about a different way of living in the world. I just think that worth worth considering. Uh, I want to suffer. Um, and so Kohelet is it begins today's section with uh, looking at the meaningless life. Um, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. What he finds meaningless in this section is this idea that um, the righteous uh, perish in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness that he sees that people who aim towards righteousness, people who are good in the world, that their light does not last long enough. And people who bend themselves towards wickedness and destruction seem to go on forever. This is his frustrating thing here, that, that if the path of wisdom and righteousness is supposed to lead to life, and Perhaps he has a narrow definition of life, I do think, is possible here. That, that there's a depth of life and there's a, there's a quantity-quality distinction, right? There's more life or there's more depth to life. Um, uh, but he, he seems to be just considering the quantity aspect of it. Who has more of it here? Um, and so that the, the, the wicked seem to live a long time and sometimes righteous people die early. So his advice out of this is do not be overly righteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? And do not be wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Who fears God, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Um, it's worth remembering that Kohelet is counter-testimony. We're not maybe supposed to take him at his word on all of this, but I do think that there's good wisdom and advice in this passage to not be over-righteous and not to focus on wickedness or to do that 
because it will destroy you faster. Which I think is interesting. He says that the wicked living long in their wickedness, he does know that foolishness and wickedness practiced quite fully will lead to a shorting of life. Um, and do not be a fool, why die before your time? I don't know why, but for some reason there's, there's um, uh, do not be a fool brought to mind. What is the, that joke about, um, it's the last words of a redneck, like uh, a Billy Bob look at this or something like this. Um, hold my beer. <laughs> Shelly went with hold my beer. Um, but I, that just made me think of like, why be a fool? Uh, it'll cause your end to life prematurely is that we have these opportunities in life to really be foolish. This is not just something confounding certain people. I think it's something that confounds a lot of us to, to take risk in the world, whether it be um, with our relationships, uh, with our capital, with our lives. Um, we have this way in which can bring death before its time. We have this way in which we can be um, careless, I think maybe is that, that way of putting it, so that you still die before your time. Um, we can, and Kohelet's pushing back on that sort of mindset. You would think sometimes for him it's, it's better to be dead than to have been, to, sit, to, to die earlier in the passage, but he still thinks living is worth doing. Um, he still has this idea of like, it wouldn't be good to die early by being foolish. Um, he wants to spare you that. Um, but do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? As Merle said, that's, that's interesting, I think, is what you said. Um, uh, and we have this, this way in which we can attempt to sort of be over-righteous, be over-wise in our time. I don't know, did anybody watch the show The Good Place? A couple people did. It was, uh, I think it... There's portions of it that fit very well with Ecclesiastes. This idea of, of one person, um, the professor, Chidi, spends, he's a, he's a philosopher of sort of um, how we should act in the world. What does it mean to be good? And yet he just finds himself endlessly paralyzed on any action he can choose. You can explore every route forever and he's unable to decide what to do. Um, this is, I think, that challenge of being, attempting to be overwise, overfull of knowledge. And when we went through Proverbs, we haven't referred to it yet, the, the idea of wisdom that came out of Proverbs was this idea of artful living. Um, that the, the word for, the Hebrew word for wisdom has this connotation of almost craft, of, of working well. And the type of wisdom he's talking about here doesn't seem to have that. It, it might be that Kohelet is often thinking of knowledge, which is why he uses that I reference a lot. I have seen, I have done this. Um, that like there's no craft to this. But Chidi, that professor, suffers from being unable to live in goodness. What I find interesting is later in the show, much later, they finally meet the people who add up whether people are good or bad or not. And it's like, so you went and bought fair trade apples, and it was like 10 good points. Um, but they were bought at a grocery store that doesn't pay their workers a, a good wage, so five minus points. They were brought from a farm that uses labor uh, that's forced, 100 minus points. Um, and so what they found is like everybody was perpetually caught sort of in the negative of human action because the world had gotten so complex, it was so hard to really know if you were doing good. And that then creates its own kind of paralysis. It's, it's odd that this character, and it's never referenced in the show, kind of turns out to be right. If you want to think through how to act like perfectly right in the world, 
you're always going to end up in this sort of paralysis because it's so complex in all its mechanisms and, and things. And so the idea of like, don't be over-wise, don't be over-righteous, is I think freeing for us in this world. That we don't know all the consequences and byproducts of every action we undertake. I bought an electric car, but it charges off of unclean coal. Um, and these conundrums, if we really think about them, face us often in the modern world, so much true that they can create a kind of paralysis. But the second thing that I think he's worrying about here is don't be overrighteous or be, don't be overwise, which will come in later is, first off, you, you really don't know yourself that well. I will be overrighteous. I will be the righteous one. I, I don't know if anybody shares this and come with me, but if somebody is acting, like saying stuff like that around me, I begin to think, I don't trust that person. Um, and I don't think you're entirely wrong. But I also think that there's a bit of um, what Bonhoeffer talked about in Life Together is that the person who's always questing after perfect community, if it ever existed, would find it and instantly kill it. Um, if there is a perfect community and you joined it in your quest to find it, you would just ruin the perfect community. Um, that you're not the type of person who could live in that spot. And in my own life, I see people concerned with over-righteousness, and what they do is they cut off human relationship because they aren't concerned with their vision of righteousness. They have opinions that make themselves um, uh, not worth engaging in. Over-righteousness leads to this sort of emptiness along the way. I've seen people lose often friendships and human connections over political concerns. And not like extreme political concerns, just whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Um, that we live in this world where we're so often sacrificing other people. And idolatry is the definition of, if, of all idols demand sacrifice, human sacrifice. We're so often sacrificing other people because of our over-righteousness. We live in that way. And so he says that it's good for us to sort of grasp one and let go of the other. And he goes back to one of his constant themes is this fear of God. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. This is another place in which I think he's practicing the displacement of self into that God is the one who knows. God is the one who will bring these things out in the ledger. God is the one who is, whose ways is able to see what he's always trying to grasp. And what's frustrating for Kohelet is he can't grasp it. He do think it's a bit of God's fault that he made us to want this, but we keep not being able to give a, get it. The next section, um, it's the same section again. Uh, the next section, wisdom makes one person uh, more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. This one goes back and forth on, it's an ancient saying in the culture, uh, both um, Gentile, non-Jewish, and Jewish. And there are people who thinks he, think he's being um, sort of tongue-in-cheek, like wisdom makes people strong, and having one ruler in a city, um, one powerful person than ten rulers in the city, may not end well. 
Um, he's in the context, he's kind of using this in a way to say um, wisdom leads to strength, but that strength doesn't always equal good. Which, by the way, when we go to the next line, it's obvious that that's the case. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one does what is right and never sins. Wisdom might make one person strong, better than ten or more powerful than ten rulers in a city, but that person is not able of being entirely righteous. There is no one person uh, who does what is right and never sins. This is what Paul takes up in the New Testament um, in that passage that we read from Brian during the Sermon in Romans, and then he culminates in that, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That for the writer, Kohelet, he sees that the people are unable to be perfect in this way. They're unable to live out this. And that, that too should keep us from the temptation of being overly righteous or a fool. Do not pay attention to every word. This one hurts, I think. Uh, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, which um, we don't have servants today, but do not pay attention to every word people say. You may hear your friends or other people cursing you um, or saying, being critical of you, and that hurts. But what hurts more is what he says next. For you know in your heart that many times you have cursed others. Um, he doesn't say, they shouldn't do that. They should stop. Everybody should be kind to one another. What he says is, when you listen to other people talking bad about you, don't do that. Because, hey, you know in your heart, you do it all the time to other people. Um, it's not the type of freedom we often hope for. Um, you know, well, if we all just tried harder, this could stop this endless cycle, which Kohelet, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, really does not think a lot about ending the cycle. He thinks any attempt to end the cycle would just sort of be more meaningless and controlling and empty in itself, too. Um, but we are caught in this, you know, do not pay attention to the word people say, or you may hear your people, your friends, your coworkers, your family cursing you, and yet you have to then do that moral inventory of, and who have I cursed? Um, who is the one that I speak ill of? Do I do this to others? This came home for me um, recently in, I was thinking about the Confessions again by St. Augustine, in which he says that him and his playmates would play games, um, and eventually the games, whatever what they were, let's just say they were playing uh, life. They weren't because it was 400 AD, but some game that you can imagine, life. And then what happened is they started stealing from each other in the game and lying and this, that, and the other. And the parents would say, look, don't lie or cheat and steal in the game. You know, the p point is to play fairly and this, that, and the other. And then Augustine would says that, but little did they know when we sat at the family dinner table at home, what mom and dad would talk about is how in the real game of life, they lied and cheated and steals and speak cursing of others. Um, and it's an interesting observation, but it's one I've thought about in, in my own battle with, um, and we talk about it here, the great battle of every Christian today is the battle with their smartphone. I'm joking. But it is in some ways. But like I tell my kids, like, oh, you're not going to have a smartphone. Get off your screens, this, that, and the other. Uh, and then when we go somewhere, dad sits on his smartphone. Um, don't pay attention to what you do. Pay attention to what everybody else does. 
It will be overly righteous in the way that you think you can raise perfect children who will sit and read Tolstoy in their free time. When you know in your heart you love doom-scrolling social media as much as the person next to you. Caught in these sort of conundrums, and in Coelho it just seems fine to say you're caught. Um, so you might try to move into this place of accepting that God knows more and is wiser than you. Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, this no one is righteous. Yeah, this was from the psalm for this morning uh, that, that Park read at the start of the service. The fullness of heart says there is no God. The corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have been corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers do nothing? Um, that there is in this psalm the same mindset that most all, well, see, I, even I want to soften it. Most people, all, he says like four times. Um, and then what his hope is, is that salvation for Israel would come from someplace else would come out, I mean, it comes from his people, but it is not going to come from him, but that God would bring salvation out of the place of Zion that would restore his people, that the people need to be restored. This is going to come back at the end. The other place where this passage, I think, shows up so much is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, which is a, a great sort of understanding of humanity that I think Christians, although we pray it often, forget, is that our word of forgiveness hinges on that we, um, we will need forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. We will have people who harm us that we will need to forgive. This is this sort of truth that is embedded in the Lord's Prayer, that, that we will do wrong. There is, one, there is no one righteous. All have turned away. That then Jesus, in teaching us this prayer, says, yes, you will need forgiveness. Perhaps one way you can lighten the burden of the world in which everybody is keeping score and trying to torture everything they can out of it is to forgive other people that we would forgive those who sin against us. It was a, I interviewed at a different church a long time ago, not this church, and they asked me what my conflict resolution style was. And I said, I think forgiveness, um, which was not the answer they were looking for. Um, but in the sense of like, I'm going to do wrong things as your pastor. I'm going to need you to forgive me. You're going to do things that frustrate me. I'm going to need to forgive you. If we just want to say, let's equal it all out, and not because forgiveness is this wiping away of that scorekeeping mindset. Conflict resolution, in the way that I heard that, and it, conflict resolution has its place, is, is to say, like, how are we going to resolve this math equation? And my answer was the easiest way to resolve it is to forgive it. Um, it has its place, it can bring justice, it can do good. And yet without forgiveness being someplace, in someplace, I mean near the end of that process, freedom won't come. We'll just keep moving in that cycle. The last two sections, um, 
all I all this I tested by wisdom. This is um, where wisdom might not mean that artful living again. It may mean something more like knowledge. I determined to be wise, but that was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? It is hard to be wise and to find wisdom. It's hard to have this knowledge. So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. Why is it people act and live in these ways? So he turns his mind to that. Where does wisdom come from? Uh, this is Job, sorry. This is this idea that wisdom is hard to find in wisdom literature. Job alerts us to that too. Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. This is important to remember for the end of the sermon too, that destruction and death... Uh, somehow only have this rumor of it. God understands the way to it, and only he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Wisdom is not easy to find in this world. And so the, he says, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, and this is the narrator, reminding we talked about that says the teacher this is what i've discovered adding one thing to another discovering the scheme of things while i was still searching but not finding i found one upright man among a thousand but not one right woman among all of them yes brian's laughing um I, this one had com commentators perplexed because there are there are those commentators who want to rescue kohelet um from being a misogynist which is fair i think that there's and I'll, I'll tell you about that inter er, er, interpretation, but he might actually just mean what he says, which is another interpretation. But because so much of, of Ecclesiastes takes place within the context of Proverbs, Proverbs 1 through 8 or 9 is predominantly a father giving advice to his son that's for all people. It's gendered because that's the way in which um, wisdom was sort of passed on in that time. Um, but about avoiding, avoiding uh, two kinds of women, but one of them most predominantly dame folly that there's a righteous woman he can pursue, and there's one that will actually just pull him down. Um, and so what the author of Ecclesiastes seems to be saying here is that um, he's talking about the one uh, typologized as Dame Folly. He's not talking about Lady Wisdom. He's talking about the one who the writer of Proverbs worms about often. Um, that there is this one, and we talked a lot in that sermon series about romance and the way in which we are drawn towards doing bad things and why the idea of an alternative relationship trying to seduce us away from the right path might be a way, wise way to start thinking about the way we live in the world. It's about what I love and where I want to go more than just thinking which action is the right action. Um, more often we're driven by things we don't know, but they're more affections then they are, oh, I just thought all of it through. And so Proverbs is, is using wisdom in that sense to say, it, your affections towards one woman or another woman are going to lead you down a bad path. Um, not uh, saying um, that your thoughts are always the answer to that. And I think that that was wise and worth considering. Um, and so he says that these, this woman, which is the one at the top, 
that he's referring to. Um, and then he says, look what I've discovered, adding one thing to another, discovering the scheme of things, which has been his problem with what we read at the start too from the last section, is that um, how can we straighten what God has made crooked? How can I understand the scheme of things? But I didn't find. I found one right in the Adam passage here. Again, there are commentators who want to rescue him from misogyny. I found one upright human among a thousand. There, there is a way in which that uh, Adam could be gender neutral. Uh, the NIV didn't go with that. I don't know if any translation did, but some s- interpreters do. Uh, but not one upright woman among the thousand. This brings me back to the end of the book of Proverbs. Just what I want to say is a noble wife of character who can find. This is the Proverbs 31 woman. She is the incarnate wisdom in which the book of Proverbs is talking about. She is the fulfillment of that. But it's interesting that she's introduced with the words, who can find her? Kohelet's search for wisdom, incarnate wisdom, is difficult. Now, I would encourage you to read through the Proverbs 31 woman passage. We don't have time for that today. But to consider the ways in which that, ways in which she practices um, fulfillment of wisdom with her hands and with her love and with her care for her family, for her husband, and as the character who summarizes the wisdom book of Proverbs, um, you can see where Kohelet says, it's hard to find. And yet, it's worth being reminded, which is why I brought this up, is that Hebrew wisdom literature's fulfillment of the person who practices wisdom is a woman. So one, hold that intention with what he says there. And then this is the end of today's passage. This only have I found, God created mankind upright. But they have gone in search of many schemes. It's an odd place for him to come back to. That God has made us upright, and yet we have sought out various schemes. This is where I think we turn to the New Testament in today's passage, which um, I tried to give room for in each of these sermons. I think we have to hear Kohelet to say that God has made us upright, that God has made us want to quest for this knowledge, and yet our heart continually turns towards schemes. Or as the psalm said, that we need salvation to come out of Zion, or what Brian read for us, but righteous now, but now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made to us through which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. That we await one to restore that uprightness. Kohelet leaves us with the bad news: we were made upright. We spend our lives searching the non-upright. But what he awaited and what we await, or what we have seen, why we're here today, is that one human did come, and one human is involved through the work of his spirit to the will of the Father in restoring the image of God within us, of restoring the upright of mankind. 
This is the quote on the back of the bulletin, and then we'll end with the words from the, from the end of Ecclesiastes. Is, you know what happens when a portrait, this is from St. Athanasius writing in 2nd or 3rd century. You know what happens when a portrait that has been painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains? He's talking about humanity. Humanity has been made this beautiful portrait and its gift in the garden. And what happened is we've chosen our own schemes. We've made our portrait marred. It has become a portrait that is marred with external stains. The artist does not throw away the panel. God did not throw away the panel that he wrote and designed in humanity in the garden. But the subject of the portrait has to come and sit again, and then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Here, Athanasius is talking about that the uprightness that we had has faded. We have chosen other schemes. But Jesus who is the author of humanity, comes again and sits for the panel. Even so, it was the all-holy Son of God, he, the image of the Father, came and dwelt in our midst that on his order he might renew mankind made after himself and seek out his lost sheep. Even as he says in the gospel, I came to seek to save that which was lost. That Christ comes and sits for the portrait again and restores the image of humanity so that we, the lost, may be found. Athanasius will go on to say that he had to taste death and destruction in order to free us from that. This is how we are restored to that image of uprightness in the Christ, in Christ coming amongst us. So we close with the words of the frame author again. Not only was the teacher wise, but also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected in sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of adding anything in addition to them. Of the making of many books there is no man, and of much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, include everything, hid, every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. We've seen part of that judgment in the coming of Christ, and we await that fulfillment. But it is for us to fear God and to keep his commandments. So we pray, God, you have instructed us in the wisdom literature. First, in the book of Proverbs, and considering the ways in which we should enact our path in the world, how we can walk and be close to you with our affections and with our heart, and the temptations that pull us away. Ecclesiastes, in its wisdom, has drawn into us that it doesn't always work out that way. That we, in that quest, can become overly wise and offer human sacrifices along the path. We can become fools and root out our own destruction. But that we should have a hand in one, and that one in which we fear you. You are the one who will bring the world into right in your judgment and bring good news to its place. We have seen this. What Kohelet says in, in the end is that we... Um, are people made upright, and yet we just seek out the seams of our own destruction? What Paul proclaimed for us, 
that while there is no one upright, one has come out of the house of Zion, who is your son, Jesus Christ. In the words of Athanasius, the one who is the image of the Father, who sits in the portrait again and restores humanity to what it was. May we, through the work of your Spirit, be people invited into that. So that in our days on earth, may we fear you and keep your commandments and await that judgment in which you will reveal everything. I ask this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.